The Daily 202 is supported by the Showtime docuseries, The Circus. Get a different perspective on the 2020 presidential campaign from hosts John Heilman, Alex Wagner, and Mark McKinnon as they go behind the scenes and beyond the headlines of the most important story of our time. Don't miss The Circus, Sundays at 8 p.m., only on Showtime. Good morning from New Hampshire. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, February 11th. In today's news, one British man may have infected at least 11 people with the coronavirus. Prosecutors recommend a long prison sentence for Roger Stone, but only after a heated internal debate with political appointees. And for the first time, all the best law reviews at all the top law schools are being run by women. But first, the big idea. In a union hall a mile from New Hampshire's gold-domed state house in Concord, Joe Biden was working a rope line, taking selfies, clapping voters on the shoulders, when a woman with a red plaid dress and a message got her turn. Sheila Zarki told the former vice president about her struggles. A 61-year-old disability rights lawyer who works on her own, Zarki is part of the insured middle class. Still, she and her husband, Bob, are fighting an unexpected $2,400 hospital bill after a facility fee was tacked on for a scan in a doctor's office. She's legally blind and holding off replacing her special glasses after they broke a few weeks ago because the $800 cost isn't covered by the health benefits they get through their jobs. And though he turns 65 next month, he's thinking of working until she's old enough for Medicare, too, because without his insurance, her premiums for an Affordable Care Act health care plan would be nearly twice what they pay now. She told Biden, quote, the Affordable Care Act is just not affordable for us. This kind of thing happens constantly here on the campaign trail to candidates who are viable and then the top tier and, and those who aren't. The first in the nation primary state, which votes today, is at the leading edge of Americans' frustration with flaws in our health care system. In conversations, as well as in standing room only audiences at town hall gatherings, the system's flaws come up nonstop. The expense of prescription drugs, a scarcity of mental health services, coverage gaps, and care that's difficult to afford even for people who have private insurance. Fresh polling shows 30% of likely Democratic primary voters in today's contest consider health care the single most important issue in deciding whom to vote for. That's the highest ranking issue here in New Hampshire as well as nationwide, by far. More than half of New Hampshire Democrats said in the latest polling that they want candidates to talk more about health care, far surpassing any other topic. Campaign gatherings here in the Granite State seem to be nudging the Democratic field beyond its running internal dispute over whether the country should shift to a single-payer health care system. Candidates are bringing up mental health needs and the pain of worrying about medical bills on top of diagnoses. Lucy Hodder, a health law professor at the University of New Hampshire and a former senior health care advisor to Senator Maggie Hassan, explains that this state has some of the highest costs, out-of-pocket costs and premium costs, in the region, and they continue to go up every year. My colleague Amy Goldstein, who covers health care policy for The Post full-time, says New Hampshire also has the nation's third highest proportion of residents with job-based insurance that features high deductibles the amount consumers must pay up front before their coverage begins. Last year, Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health, which is this state's largest private employer, began chipping in most of the money 
to health savings accounts for their lower income workers. And they increased the contribution for employees with incomes up to 150000 a year. Even so, the costs can be overwhelming. Kat Burrell, a marketing manager for the health system, discovered in the fall of 2016 that the pressure she'd been feeling in the lower right side of her abdomen was a four-pound ovarian tumor, clear cell carcinoma. After chemotherapy, her doctor said she was cancer-free, but then it returned last summer, and she began an immunotherapy clinical trial. The trial pays for the drugs, but not the CAT scans she needs every six weeks at $9,000 a pop or the infusion of doctor's appointments. Even with a health plan that she thinks is fair, she faces a $2,800 deductible for herself and her teenage son. The premiums would double if she included her husband, Chris, so he's on a health plan with a larger deductible through his job as a horse farm's maintenance technician. And at the start of each year, she dreads her plan's $4,400 out-of-pocket maximum. Together, Burrell and her husband, who recently had knee surgery, have racked up $37,000 so far for the expenses their insurance is not covering. Her husband is postponing rotator cuff surgery, wanting to focus on paying for her care, even though he goes to work every day in pain. Burrell, who's only 49, said she doesn't think of herself as a political person, but that this year, healthcare is not only number one on her list, it's what's driving her to the polls. She's known she couldn't support a candidate who favors a single-payer system. She fears that Medicare for All would rupture the relationships that she values with her doctors. She decided over the weekend, after seeing the candidate speak, to get behind Pete Buttigieg, who sprinkles his town hall events here with talk of a Medicare-like option for consumers who prefer an alternative to private insurance. Like an uncommon number of voters with this primary so close, Zarki, the conquered lawyer who approached Biden, says that she expects to make up her mind today once she's standing in the voting booth. She said she could go multiple ways and hasn't decided. She likes that Medicare for All would cover long-term care since many of her elderly clients cannot afford it, and she thinks it would end the difficult conversation she and her husband keep having. She tells him she might spare the expense of insurance by going uncovered if he retires, and he insists he'll keep working until she's old enough for Medicare rather than leaving her vulnerable. With one of the nation's highest median ages and a fast-growing older population, the cost of prescription drugs is also a major concern here. And, and people see close up the limits of Medicare. At a Biden town hall in Summersworth, D. Parada was near the end of that rope line where Biden was talking. A recently retired psychiatric nurse, she told the candidate that people can't always afford medicines to treat their personality disorders. At the community health center in Essex, where she worked, she and psychiatrists often pleaded with insurance companies to approve drugs that were new or simply ones that weren't covered. At a town hall in Derry with Bernie Sanders, a college student holding a Bernie sign stood up to tell the candidate that he's lined up a job after he graduates in May working as an analyst for an insurance company. He asked what would happen given that Medicare for All would wipe out all private insurers. Sanders replied that there will be a, quote, very just transition period. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this primary day. Number one, as deaths from the coronavirus topped 1,000 yesterday, with more than 100 dying in a single day, China urged countries that have enacted travel restrictions aimed at curbing the outbreak 
to restore normal ties for the sake of the global economy. The comments from China's foreign ministry underscored the economic dangers posed by the unprecedented shutdown of much of the world's second largest economy, as well as the Communist Party's concerns about the outbreak's capacity to fuel domestic instability. Meanwhile, authorities in the virus-hit city of Wuhan announced fresh restrictions on residents, making millions of people virtual prisoners in their own homes. Two provincial health bosses were fired yesterday as the Communist Party struggles to contain growing, widespread anger over the spread of the virus. The number of confirmed infections continues to rise, but luckily the rate of growth is slowing. More than a dozen ambulances are lined up right now alongside the Diamond Princess cruise ship in Yokohama, Japan, as medical staff evacuate passengers and crew who are confirmed as carrying the virus. More than 65 people on board have tested positive. China is now bracing for the return of 160 million migrant workers to their big cities of employment as the country's economy sputters back to life after an extended holiday vacation that was ordered by the government following the outbreak. And authorities in Europe are saying that one British superspreader may have unwittingly infected at least 11 people with the coronavirus as he flew from Singapore to France to Switzerland and then to England. And the CDC confirms the 13th coronavirus infection here in the United States. The patient was among several hundred Americans who were evacuated last week from Wuhan and is currently being treated at the University of California San Diego Medical Center. Number two. Federal prosecutors said last night that Roger Stone deserves seven to nine years in prison for lying to Congress in the Russia probe. The sentencing filing came after days of tense, acrimonious debate within the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington about the proper prison term for the sixth Trump associate convicted and the last person indicted as part of former special counsel Bob Mueller's investigation. Frontline career prosecutors non-political people, some who previously worked on Mueller's team, argued for a sentence on the higher end for Stone than some of their politically connected supervisors were comfortable with. A recommendation on the higher end prevailed, with prosecutors filing citing federal sentencing guidelines that ratchet up in cases involving obstruction that actively impedes the administration of justice. Stone's defense team asked for a sentence of probation, citing his age, he's 67, and lack of criminal history. They also noted that of seven Mueller defendants who've been sentenced, only one faces more than a six-month term, former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort, who's serving seven and a half years hard time. Hours before the filing was due last night, the new interim head of the D.C. office, acting U.S. Attorney Tim Shea, a close advisor and friend to Attorney General and Trump loyalist Bill Barr, still hadn't made the final decision on Stone's sentencing recommendation. Apparently, it was a very real struggle in the office, according to two sources on the inside. Disagreements among prosecutors about sentencing recommendations are not uncommon, especially when it comes to politically sensitive, high-profile cases. It would have been highly unusual, however, for the U.S. Attorney's Office to endorse a sentence below the guideline range after winning conviction at a hard-fought trial. Stone refused to take a plea deal. Meanwhile, Barr acknowledged yesterday that his Justice Department has created what he called an intake process to vet the dirt provided by Rudy Giuliani on Joe and Hunter Biden. Barr confirmed an assertion made Sunday by Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina 
that the Justice Department had created a process that Giuliani could give information to be verified by investigators. A Justice Department official says Giuliani had recently shared information with federal law enforcement officials through this process described by Barr. Two people familiar with the matter say the information is being routed to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Pittsburgh. That Giuliani would have a direct pipeline to the upper echelons of the Justice Department for providing information on a political rival of the sitting president raised fears among legal analysts and DOJ alum that federal law enforcement was being conscripted into doing campaign work for this president. The matter is especially complicated, too, because Giuliani is under active investigation by the Justice Department. That case has produced campaign finance charges against two of his associates, Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, who helped in Giuliani's Ukraine-related pursuits. Barr's announcement angered Democrats, who questioned whether Giuliani's getting special treatment. Giuliani has long vexed Barr in the Justice Department, but he's maintained access to the department and to the attorney general. Number three, let me end today on a brighter note. Only one woman worked on the staff of the Harvard Law Review when Ruth Bader Ginsburg arrived on campus in 1956. It would be another two decades before a woman was elected to lead that school's prestigious legal journal. Barack Obama was famously the first African-American editor. The Supreme Court Justice, Ginsburg, recently addressed the current slate of editors-in-chief from the top 16 law schools in our country. For the first time ever, all 16 are women. The event in part celebrated the statistical improbability of an all-female sweep of elections at the leading publications of legal scholarship at schools including Stanford, Yale, Harvard, Georgetown, Columbia, and Duke. The editors-in-chief collaborated for the first time to publish a Women and Law journal, with a series of essays from prominent female attorneys. But there was also recognition as the women came together dressed in dark power suits of the hard reality that men still dominate the ranks of law firms, the federal judiciary, and academia. In recent years, the number of women enrolling in accredited law schools has far exceeded the number of men. But women still make up less than a quarter of law firm equity partners, a quarter of tenured and tenure-track law professors, and only a third of active federal district and appeals court judges. Women are also underrepresented at oral arguments before the Supreme Court. In the past five terms, only 17% of the advocates were women. As Duke law professor Marin Levy put it, there is certainly more glass yet to be shattered, but I see a whole lot of hammers out there. And that's... The Daily 202 for Tuesday, February 11th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.